Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Lockdowns have become an essential tool for halting the spread of COVID-19. But at what cost? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Sharnbog, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show, why the return to the office is proving much more complicated than last year's mass exodus. When offices first shut down last year, the change was immediate. Now that habits have formed, many workers are reluctant to come back. And, as he prepares to move to a new beat, our China economics editor reflects on a decade of reporting on the country's remarkable growth. You've got red-blooded competition in the private sector, and you've got the restless quest of millions upon millions of ordinary people who are just trying to improve their lot in life. First, how much is a human life worth? In May 2020, Governor Andrew Cuomo addressed demands to lift the month-long lockdown of New York State. A human life is priceless, period. Politicians around the world were engaged in a grim calculus. The faster we reopen, the lower the economic cost, but the higher the human cost. Before the crisis, lockdowns had seemed implausible. But once China and Italy had shown the way, other governments followed suit. Now, more than a year on, as waves of infections persist, the mathematics of lives versus livelihoods has not become any easier. Were trillions of dollars of lost economic output an acceptable price to pay for slowing down the spread of the virus? Or, given that around 10 million people have died globally so far, should authorities have clamped down even harder? Were lockdowns worth it? The first thing to say is that this is a very difficult thing to weigh up. Much of the collateral damage is is still to come. Callum Williams is our senior economics writer. I mean, it's very hard to say at this point what the the long-term cost of literally hundreds of millions of children being out of school has been or will be. There's a paper that was published uh, in the US a few months ago, which calculated that because of the fact that unemployment went up, by so much, um, if past relationships hold, you'd expect that to translate into about 800,000 extra deaths over the next 15 years. And that's obviously a very substantial amount. The debate really is about kind of how you weigh up those competing pressures, competing factors, and ultimately whether it's possible to do a cost-benefit analysis of lockdowns. So some people point to the experience of countries like Australia, New Zealand and South Korea here to say there isn't really a trade-off between lives and livelihoods because they use the so-called elimination approach. How much merit is there to that argument? It is right that those countries have both seen a very small hit in terms of people's lives lost due to COVID and their economies have done pretty well. 
that's undeniable. The question is, does this kind of tell you something more fundamental about the trade-offs involved in the pandemic? I think the the evidence is that it that it doesn't. I mean, there's lots of reasons why these countries are very, very different to the average country, particularly in the case of South Korea and Japan. It is just a puzzle as to why two countries that didn't kind of massively go down the lockdown route and are also pretty old have managed to escape so unscathed. So I think if you're looking for correlations, I think the place to look is not to pick the best examples. So not to pick New Zealand and Australia, but is to look at countries that are more comparable, that are either close to each other. So within a continent, for instance, even states or provinces or whatever within a country. And I think there, once you do that, and you're comparing more like with like in that case, then the idea of a trade-off becomes a little bit clearer. Give us a few examples of those like with like comparisons. Okay, so one example is the euro area, which is lots of similar-ish countries, quite closely geographically located. Some simple correlations here would suggest that uh, the more excess deaths you have in a country in the euro area, so the more people that have died, basically, in the past year, the hit to GDP has been smaller. So uh, in other words, that suggests that there is sort of a trade-off here between saving uh, lives and saving the economy. Uh, The other one that people are particularly fond of looking at is US states. And the best evidence that I've seen suggests that it's not the case that you need to eliminate COVID in order to save the economy. So for instance, there's, there's really no relationship between the number of people who've died from COVID in a state and that state's unemployment rate. So the debate is much more complicated than simply saying there's no trade-offs here. Now, another plank of the no trade-off argument is that mandatory lockdowns are pointless because personal choice is what really makes the difference, people choosing to stay at home. What's the evidence around that? This is the big talking point, I guess. It's so important because it's an argument against the idea that you can just say, okay, let's just get rid of all the restrictions and we'll put up with some extra deaths but people will go back to work and start going out to eat again. And so the economy will cover. Because if it's the case that actually voluntary behaviour explains everything, then if the government loosens COVID restrictions, then people won't actually change their behaviour at all. Uh, They'll only change their behaviour when the threat from COVID has, has vanished. And there's lots of papers looking at this. There's one paper in particular, which has been cited loads of times you know, it's a very good paper by um, Austin Goolsby and Chad Syverson, who are two uh, American economists looking at the US. And they come to the conclusion that voluntary behaviour is is extremely important, uh, much more important than, than actual government regulations and explaining why people change their behaviour. There's a few kind of, kind of counterpoints to that, I think. One is not all the research comes to that conclusion. So there's a paper by one of the sort of big cheeses at the OECD, who who actually says, actually, if you look, use slightly different measures, then it turns out that that, that government orders do actually explain quite a lot. There's, there's not total agreement on this, basically. But it's entirely possible, isn't it, that government orders themselves influence personal choice. So pointing out causality here is quite muddy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the other big thing. In a, in a way, that's the more compelling counter-argument, which is that in all the literature there's this very neat division between voluntary and and mandated social distancing. But I think actually doing that is much more difficult because the press conferences that everybody was watching in kind of March, April and May of last year, where government officials and public health officials would stand up and quite rightly warn of all the dangers of COVID, 
they don't count as mandated social distancing, but they were surely designed to and did, I'm quite sure, have a large impact on people's behaviour. And then, of course, the other thing is that governments through stimulus policies enabled a lot of this quote-unquote, voluntary behaviour to take place. So I think the distinction between voluntary and mandated is, is actually finer than most people acknowledge. So given the evidence shows that there is a trade-off, how can you work out whether lockdowns were indeed worth it? How can you put a price on those lives saved and livelihoods lost? Putting a price on a life is, is, a, is not a nice debate to be having, particularly at the moment, but it's something that governments have to do in lots of different public policies particularly in healthcare, where, you know, the question of how much do you pay for a drug that can extend someone's life by a year, you need to have a figure for that to know whether it's it's worth doing. This has now become a, a kind of huge industry of people doing cost-benefit analyses. As with everything to do with COVID, there are very different conclusions that researchers come to. One, for instance, suggests that social distancing has benefits in the region of 20% of GDP for rich countries, which is just absolutely enormous. Uh, because of all the lives that are saved via lockdowns. But then on the other hand, you have some very well-respected economists who they take a different value of life. Some people will say that you should follow the standard that's set by American regulatory agencies. And they say that the value of, of, of a life is roughly $11 million. But then others will say you shouldn't do that in the COVID pandemic because the COVID pandemic is something that affects older people much more. Older people obviously have uh, fewer years of life left and they, they come to the conclusion that lockdowns actually weren't worth it. There is also much less uh, agreement than I had thought before looking at this on how effective lockdowns have even been. So given these different results, Callum, there's clearly a lot of subjectivity here. So what is it possible to say then about whether lockdowns were truly worth it or not? Is that even a question that economics can answer? Economics definitely has a role to play, for sure, because this analysis does bring a huge amount of intellectual clarity to the lockdown debate that um, so many of these debates don't have. But I think there's so much that's unusual about the pandemic that we need to think differently about how we do cost-benefit analysis. So I guess the way to think about it is that economists and economics can provide the tools for analysing pros and cons of lockdowns, but ultimately the judgment as to whether it was worth it will will rest with public opinion. Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. And for more on this story and more Money Talks, you can sign up to our brand new newsletter. It'll be winging its way into inboxes every Thursday from tomorrow, the 1st of July, with the best of the economist's analysis of the biggest stories in business, economics and the market. It's free and you can sign up right now at economist.com slash money talks. That's economist.com slash money talks. And the link is also in the notes for this episode. Next. The pandemic has created new habits. Legions of office workers have swapped dress shoes for slippers, city apartments for the suburbs and the morning commute for interminable Zoom calls. But while the exodus of white-collar workers from their offices was sudden, the return may be anything but. And as economies reopen, employers face tough choices about whether and how to bring staff back to their desks. Sending people home could turn out to have been the easy bit. Companies are under pressure to give employees some certainty about how they'll be expected to work in the future. But it's important not to underplay the scale of the challenge. Vinjeru Mukandawire is The Economist's property correspondent. When offices first shut down last year, the change was immediate. 
Now that habits have formed, many workers are reluctant to come back. Some employers are insisting that staff return full time, but many of the tech firms, for example, Twitter, Spotify, Square, have told employees that they can work remotely forever. For a lot of companies, it'll be somewhere in the middle. There's a huge range and variety in companies' plans, and this is likely to evolve as restrictions are updated in different countries. Now, as you say, not everyone is as eager for the pandemic homeworking experiment to become the new normal. If the permanently remote tech firms are at one end of the scale, who's at the other? You have the big Wall Street banks who've been very outspoken about this. Goldman Sachs, CEO, has called remote work an aberration. James Gorman, the boss of Morgan Stanley, recently said that if you could go to a restaurant in New York City, you can come into the office. But for the vast majority of companies, their policies will fall somewhere in the middle. So there seems to be a sort of cultural divide here. Is that mainly something that reflects different sectors, say the liberal techies versus the suited and booted finance types? Or are there also geographical splits? It's both. In Europe, for example, businesses are being more flexible. Banks in the UK, such as NatWest, have said that just 13% of staff would work in person full time, and the rest can mainly work from home or take a hybrid approach. Whereas staff at Deutsche Bank in Germany are working remotely up to 60% of the time. HSBC has actually described the shift back to pre-pandemic working patterns as a missed opportunity for companies. And so they want staff to embrace hybrid arrangements. They're also cutting down office space and having all of the executives at the company, including the CEO, take part in hot desking. And uh, so it's been a real change at HSBC, and you're seeing that across the board in Europe. At the same time, some industries are just better suited to working remotely, either because there are fewer client meetings involved or because the tasks involved are for individuals to deal with rather than teams. So it really depends on the company. Vinjero, to what extent do these strategies align with what staff actually want? Could hardline employers risk driving their employees away? Yes, there is a risk that what employers want doesn't necessarily align with what workers want. And uh, it's certainly a workers' market at the moment. A poll of around 2,000 American adults by Prudential found that 87% of those that worked from home during the pandemic wanted to continue doing so. And the same survey said that 42% of remote workers said that they would look for a new job if they were being forced to return to the office full time. And even young workers, despite often being seen as casualties of remote working, are actually starting to embrace flexible schedules. So while certain companies may be calling the shots at the moment, in future, this definitely will affect the war for talent. So companies that are able to adapt their working patterns will not only hire the best employees, but they'll also keep them. But presumably companies are also having conversations with their investors. Yes, absolutely. So behind closed doors, institutional investors are also pushing companies to adopt flexible working in order to retain talent. And in a way, it's something that they've been talking about for years. Uh, S&P Global, a rating firm, says that under its assessment, the ability to work from home is one of the key measures of employee health and well-being, which can influence up to 
5% of a company's ESG score. And that's roughly the same weighting attached to risk and crisis management for banks, for example, or human rights measures for miners. So at a strategic level for companies, this is a really crucial point. Wherever companies decide to fall on the scale of flexibility, it seems that the real challenge is going to be not just deciding on that level of flexibility, but also enforcing the new models of work. What do you see as the main hurdles here? One of the most obvious challenges emerging right now is the issue of vaccines. So the number of people who can't or won't get vaccinated raises thorny questions for employers, as well as legal ones. Morgan Stanley and BlackRock are among some of the companies that are banning unvaccinated workers at some of their offices. But most firms are quietly encouraging uh, staff to, to get vaccinated. Some, such as Goldman, are demanding proof of inoculation or are implementing more restrictive policies for those that forego vaccinations, whereas others are offering cash, time off and other prizes for vaccinated workers. And is that going to be enough to close the gap between what employers want and what their staff want? It's a difficult question. Many employees will be reluctant to give up their autonomy. People have had control over their own schedules for so long, and some are anxious about getting back on public transport. But at the same time, others are desperate for more routine and face-to-face time. So there's a huge gap between what employers want and employees' preferences. The Best Practice Institute found that more than 80% of business leaders wanted employees back full-time, compared with just 10% of workers. So this is still very much an experiment and the stakes are high for everyone, but the cracks are definitely starting to show. Finjeru, thank you very much. Thank you, Rachna. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And finally, tomorrow, Thursday, July the 1st, China's Communist Party celebrates its 100th birthday. Its current leader, the strongman President Xi Jinping, has presided over a decade of increasing ideological orthodoxy, coupled with spectacular economic development. Our China and Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, has been tracking and analysing those changes over that time. As he prepares to leave China for a new beat, he reflects on a decade of extraordinary growth and on what may lie ahead. You know, when you start reporting on a country, you might have quite strong opinions, quite strong assumptions that appear very solid. But, you know, over time, you begin to see them crumble away. Just a few months ago, I was visiting a city in southeastern China, Guiyang. Uh, and it's a city I'd, I'd been to uh, several years earlier. So I asked the driver if he could take me to the new district. I knew that it was a district that seemed to epitomize the ghost cities that China's economy has been infamous for. Um, but the driver said to me, which new district, the new new district or the old new district? We went there and it was full of cars, full of life, 
uh, so full of cars, in fact, that you know, it's got stuck in a, in a god-awful traffic jam. Uh, and in the meantime, the city has gone on to build an even bigger new district. The situation here can change so rapidly. But this is not just a, you know, a mea culpa for times in which I was overly gloomy about China's prospects. I mean, there also were instances where I was overly optimistic about, about the way in which it might change. You know, as far back as 2007, China's prime minister at the time, Wen Jiabao, you know, talked about how the economy was unstable, was unbalanced. And you can see that today, you know, in the aftermath of COVID-19, the way in which you know, investment uh, above and beyond anything is driving growth uh, and consumption, income redistribution still remain very, very limited. Broadly speaking, though, looking back at my 10 years in China, I do think the conclusion has to be that China got more right than wrong uh, with its economic management over the years. I mean, we're talking about a time during which the overall size of the economy, the GDP, doubled, despite the fact that the economy was already quite mature, quite sophisticated, and you had lots of people for many years, you know, predicting imminent doom, China has consistently defied those predictions. One common response to this idea that China has done well, has done very well, in fact, is that it's somewhat of an illusion, that the government really ultimately is skilled at at just delaying the payback from all of the debt that has built up over the years. I think what's less appreciated, though, is that China's ability to engage in, you know, you can call it financial engineering, is itself a measure of success. You know, the government is able to lean on its banks as policy tools because they are very profitable to begin with. If you look at the telltale signs of an economy that has serious problems, so things like high inflation or rampant unemployment, big corporate troubles, they exist in China, but really only in small pockets. The, the, the big story is that the growth engine is still humming along. You know, this is something that I really got to see starting in 2014 when I moved from Beijing to Shanghai. Now, both cities are great. There's a long-running debate about which city is better. I'm not going to weigh into that right now. But in terms of a reflection of the economy, Shanghai and the area around it offer a much more flattering picture than what you see in Beijing. Beijing is really, it's a showcase for political power. You drive around the city and you see the big hulking headquarters of state-owned companies everywhere. You move to Shanghai, it's a city that just functions remarkably well for a city of 25 million people. And you go to places like Hangzhou, which is full of China's high-tech innovators, companies like Alibaba, Ant Financial, uh, Wenzhou, full of resilient entrepreneurs. You've got red-blooded competition in the private sector. And you've got the restless quest of millions upon millions of ordinary people who are just trying to improve their lot in life. You know, these days, though, complimenting or praising China's economy can seem a little politically fraught. But I think the real response is not to begrudge China its successes, but to really insist on on proper attribution. You know, if you look at China's model, which is partly based on having a repressed managed financial system, which has enabled very heavy investment, uh, also based on leveraging exports to make the economy more competitive. 
In East Asia, you can look to Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan as forerunners of what China has done. Now, China's done so at a far greater scale, which is very impressive, but it's not one of a kind. At the beginning of its period of fast development in the 1980s, it was an overwhelmingly agrarian rural country. While year by year the population has shifted from the countryside, from low productivity farms to much higher productivity work and in industry and factories, uh, economists, uh, especially Sir Arthur Lewis, would point out that this kind of reallocation of labor is something that that is really a fundamental driver of growth. Looking ahead, I'd say it's self-evident that the coming decade is going to be a lot more challenging for China. You know, the point about urbanization. While you're now looking at a country that's 65% urbanized, so kind of the easy extra growth that you get from people moving to the countryside to the cities, that more or less has been used up. The parallels between China and Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, etc. Those have also started to break down. China is both older and also much more indebted uh, than any of those countries were at, at a similar stage of development. You've got a government under Xi Jinping, which is focused first and foremost on trying to strengthen uh, the Communist Party's control, its hold on the country. That's not something which is necessarily consonant with strong growth going forward. And then, of course, the external environment around China is much harder than it used to be for the country. You now have its main rival, the United States, trying to push through a process of decoupling. China is responding to that by trying to cultivate its own self-reliance, but no country has been able to sustain a high level of prosperity and a high level of growth by turning inwards. It's almost enough to make one quite bearish about China's economic prospects. You know, Not to say that the economy is going to crash, but to say that it's, it's descending towards something like economic stagnation and potentially quite soon. And I've got to say that, you know, in the conversations that I have with analysts, with investors, certainly foreign, but also Chinese, versions of this narrative crop up again and again. But having been in China for a decade, seeing the flexibility of the economic model, the industry of the people, and even the adaptability of the government, the fact that this more negative view has become something like consensus opinion leads me to believe that the ultimate outcome is probably going to be a fair bit better. Our thanks to Simon Rabinovich. And don't miss tomorrow's episode of The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast, which will be a special edition looking at the transformation at the heart of the Chinese Communist Party as it enters its second century. Search for The Intelligence wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, thank you for listening to Money Talks. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Scharnbogue, and in London, this is The Economist.